Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Okay, what is up, guys? What's up? Welcome back. Part two. An episode number I don't even know at this point. Oh, good point. We're, we're in the hundreds now. We should be, right? Yeah, we are. We, we we're did, in the hundred something. We did the 100 episode for sure. 100 something is indeterminate 100. <laughs> I'm going to need there to check go. now. And by the way, so you guys don't forget... Mm-hmm. Me and Giuseppe did a behind the paywall episode. Yep. Where we talked about things not only in general in philosophy, but specific philosophical issues that we disagreed sometimes fervently on. Yep. And that sounded like this. And that seems to to uh, indicate exclusivity, not just of access, but of existence, of essence, right? You're separated from everything else. You just said it before, right? This is like my, this is me. Completely mm-hmm. separated from everything else. And this gives you the wrong idea, again, metaphysically. Because it seems like the, there are different things. I don't know if you want to call it substances or not, but there are different. Mm-hmm. Each one of us, it's his own thing that theoretically can exist and can be uh, almost... Let's say exists in a vacuum, right? It still is you. If tomorrow everything gets destroyed, nothing exists anymore, and you are in space with a space suit in the middle of nothingness, that is still you. I didn't say that. But that's the tradition, right? Yeah, but that's not That's the court. That's the court. The court, like... I'm not the one that said (laughs) I agree totally with Descartes. I think he gets things wrong, too. Like, he talks about how... You know, the, the mental substance can exist independent yeah. of the physical substance. And, you know, I'm not saying that. I, I, I'm not saying that, oh, I believe... Because this happens sometimes, right? I find this happens in, in um, like, political discussions in my past, too. And even ethical discussions where, like, one person... Like, forget about me, just a person. Uh-huh. Uh, or, or maybe that doesn't exist. <laughs> but something we call a person yeah. m- makes a case... Very basic case for like a self or um, an individual, Mm -hmm. and then the other person goes. So what you're saying is you believe in atomistic individual, and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not. That's not what I said. So I think that basically, the 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 thing I believe in is a locus of experience that um, exists underneath the experiences. Mm And is affected by the experiences mm-hmm. and stays the same insofar as it, it is a thing mm-hmm. that is there, but changes to the extent that things happen to it and influence it. Okay. Well, I think that, that's, that's kind of all I mean, right? So, like, I'll give a, I'll be specific because you might be like, what? Or people are like, but that's really abstract. So, like, me at age, I'll pick an age that isn't like, controversial let's say age 
An age that everyone will remember somewhat. Let's say age six. I was about to say five, yeah. Five or six, right? Let's think of you in kindergarten yeah. or something like that. I don't, I don't say, oh, yeah, remember that one? That was not me. <laughs> you may metaphorically say I'm a different person, and in a Lockean sense... Well, Locke might no. Locke would say you're the same because you have mm. well, somewhat the same because you have somewhat the same memories. But the point is, you don't say you're a totally different person. You say I've I've changed to an extent. I've become more complex. I've had more things happen to me. Uh, I had more experiences, but that's still me. Mm -hmm. right? If I say to you, like Giuseppe, tell me about something that happened in first grade. Mm -hmm. You're gonna you're gonna tell me. You're not gonna be like, well, there was no me. In first grade, and I think this like basic way of using language reveals not merely that we we don't think we're the same person and are just tricking ourselves and using metaphors, but that we actually do on a fundamental level think that there's something underneath it all that even when I'm 80, I'm going to have access to somewhat, right? And that it's like it's like the reason why an 80 year old's character mm -hmm. from the inside and the outside is interesting is because they have they have a story there's so much stuff right there's so much context going into that thing looking back it's a story part of it right um story not as in a narrative that i'm consciously doing maybe but in in like no, but it isn't well not totally consciously doing it is a narrative right okay so if you guys want to hear more about that, check us out on Patreon. But back to the extra weird stuff. Yeah. Oh, and so number 105, this is 105. This is 105? Yes. Also, All right. I think you made a promise to explain something. Oh, I did. It, okay, you, so. you forgot the last episode, so you'll need to explain it now, I guess. I did. So I apologize <laughs> wholeheartedly. <laughs> To Nikki, yes. who sent in a question to us mm -hmm. uh, that I was supposed to answer last episode that I told her. Uh, so we got a question about our theme music, mm -hmm. which is not a question that I was expecting. <laughs> From a psychologist, too. You're in trouble, man. <laughs> I know, I know. So I, so I, want, I don't want to mess up the question and, and reduce it so <clears throat> you're gonna look it up i'm going to do it specifically yep it was a question about basically uh what we're trying to say with the theme music which i think is an interesting question and i'll so here I'll we go pump this right away that was you so so here we go. For every episode that I've listened to, I experience the same pause of curiosity at both the beginning and the end. I'm talking certainly about your theme music. Kant, as we all know, described music as expressive. We could save the debate as to whether we should do this or not for a later day. In this way, music is language. We use it in hopes of conveying a message to others. Uh, and so imagining the two of you crafting your podcast smartly, considering all the details and paying much attention to the music as you do to the other stuff. So what is the music? Who composed it? How did you come to select it? 
Was there a debate, discussion, argument perhaps behind what would be a good fit, what would be considered off message? And so the real question is, what is your message with the theme music? What are you saying to us? Or should I rephrase, what are you hoping that we will hear? Thanks for your work. Your passion and knowledge are infectious. So, I feel like my answer on this is going to be somewhat unsatisfying. (laughs) (laughs) And not in like a glib way, uh, but more like a, I think there's a difference in the, uh, the attitudes we have on what music is. So, so to clear to clear the the first part of this, I don't think there was any discussion about this. There was not between me and you. There was like we need a team music, and then you did this, and you said you like it, and I was like, yes, I like it. Let's do it. Yeah. So you you didn't pick it. I just said like, hey, here's this thing, good, and you were like, good. So, what the theme is, which you don't even know this. Nope is it's actually um, a small section from a larger piece of music that I have. Okay, that's yours. That's mine, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, So I was in a band for many years. What's the name of the band? Let's Uh, plug it. What's the name of the band? A band called Audio Insight. Mm -hmm. And it was a progressive prog rock band. And we mostly did stuff in New Jersey. We did a couple of regional things, played like at a couple of festivals with some people we really like. But I digress. And that band, the last thing we released was an EP. And that EP was like, uh, it's called the Embryo EP, which I still stand by uh, as a musician, was half of a larger album that never came out. Uh, that I still have, like it still exists. I'm just, you know, not playing music with these people anymore. Um, and then after that, there's a whole second full album that exists that I wrote, where things have never seen the light of day with other people. Um, and one of the songs on that album, <laughs> the second non-existent one. Mm-hmm. Um, contains the section the small section that is the theme from this podcast okay does that song Uh, have a title it does uh it is called comfort however fleeting okay it's an instrumental piece okay it's the only instrumental piece on that album just guitar interesting it's just guitar yes um but the thing is, it's not actually trying to say something specific. I, I actually don't agree with this premise <laughs> that music is intrinsically this vessel for um, giving a message as if it was speech. It's not expression. Uh, no, I think it's, it's expression, but I, I don't, I wouldn't say that all forms of expression are like literally trying to tell you specific codified messages. Um, in this way, I reveal that I'm more f- of a formalist about music, um, where I think it's more about the, the, what it sounds like 
uh, versus like what the lyrics are telling you. And it's not that I like, obviously the music has a specific feeling and there's like something I'm doing when I'm making it and like playing it and listening to it. Um, as evidenced by selections of certain words carefully to make titles. But it's, um, to make a long story short, so we keep talking about this, another conversation, which we should do on music one day, I think. Um, It's not anything specifically codified like that. Uh, I don't think that's my approach to things. It just so happened to be the case that there's something in that selection from that piece that has a kind of thing in it. I don't even want to call it a mood because I think that's that's saying too much. That seems appropriate sometimes for the kind of thing that we're doing. And it's not an exact match. And it's kind of like funny sometimes when I actually play that or play it back and that part comes up. It's like, oh, yeah, and that's the that's the this theme song. It has like an independent existence. Um, but, yeah, so, Nikki, that's that's my answer to that. And I think it'd be cool for me and you to talk more about music, the psychology and philosophy of music, and maybe other things, wink, wink. <laughs> but anyway, back to the, the idealism yes. stuff. So at the end of last episode, we got into this conversation – through religious means, which was interesting, um, or rather like theological means, we could say, um, about whether you can have a, a blank mind, whether you can have like an indeterminate structure, like a structure that contains nothing in it besides potential. And I ended by saying that there's this philosopher, Hegel, mm-hmm. who has this book called, well, actually there's two. The one is, the bigger one's called The Science of Logic. And then the second one is called the Encyclopedia Logic, which is called the Lesser Logic. Yep. And in this book, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain this book. Um, it, I guess I, it's kind I, of just, like metaphysics. Yeah. He's like trying to figure out the basic structures of all things and how they come to be. But it's like the most abstract thing you will ever read. Yes. And by abstract, I don't merely mean strange although it is that i mean like he's really hitting the limits of language in trying to figure out the base mechanics of all things and so it's very it's like hard to categorize obviously it's called has something to do with logic something to do with metaphysics and in this one i've never read the greater logic i've only read the lesser logic in grad school he says how, like, reality starts with being, but a being that is not yet determinate. Mm-hmm. In other words, it has nothing in it. And so being in itself already kind of contains at least an allusion to nothingness. And so you then have nothingness, but it's not like a total nothingness because the true nothingness is not. And this is a nothingness with qualities <laughs> relationally. And so there's this like interplay between being and this positive type of negativity that results in becoming. And then eventually you have a thing. And people are listening are like, what the hell is that? And my answer is go 
read about it. <laughs> yeah. Although when whenever students like I've heard Giuseppe do this thing where they go, Oh, I got this book called The Phenomenology of Spirit, you're like, Don't don't look at it. Don't open it. <laughs> <laughs> no, because because exactly exactly because you just said or what you just said. Because it's so abstract that if you don't have the tools that we know those students that have those books usually don't have, they're going to be turned off. Uh, and they're going to be like, yeah. if philosophy is this, I never want to hear about philosophy ever again, right? Yeah, I hated it at first. I'm still not like someone who's super into Hegel, but I remember <laughs> it's very bad. Like I had a class on the encyclopedia in uh, at Duquesne. And I had a really cool teacher. He was this Italian guy named Vinco, Roberto Vinco, I think. He was an Italian guy. And we were reading it. And really, reading this stuff out loud is rough. It is rough. And, like, there was some point where I giggled. <laughs> and I feel like it was, like, giggling at church, right? It was this sacrilegious thing, and, and I feel bad a little bit. But that's the kind of thing it elicited in me. And, and you know, I'm not going to write it off because I do think it's more like I just didn't get it at the time. But to try and explain it in simpler language... And to get back to the thing you asked at the previous episode's end, people will recall the distinction between particulars, uh, which in Greek could be like the todete or the kathkastan, which means like a this here, a that, right? Like I'm holding a guitar pick right now, I'm touching it. Mm -hmm. It's this one and not any other one, versus a universal, which is an abstraction. It is not one thing, but it is, as Aristotle says, is predicated of many things, mm -hmm. right? So guitar pick in general or something like that. Now, it would seem like in order for a particular of anything to exist, it, it must first be a particular of some universal. Like there can't be, and this is getting into Plato, which gets into to Hegel. There can't be a particular chair as such unless there is a universal chair in which the particular is participating or which the particular is exemplifying, right? So think of a universal as kind of a blank particular. It's like a blank structure for things. It's not, it's not a specific chair, but it has like all those, those rules or forms, like you were saying, of the potential to be a chair. A particular is an actuality, whereas you might say a universal is like has some potentiality in it. I think kind of when Hegel people are so crazy, they're going to kill You're me. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. I'm not touching this. Really? <laughs> it's like, remember that article you sent me years ago yep. about the girlfriends and wives of Hegelians yep. or ex-girlfriends and wives of Hegelians just getting on forums and being like, weren't these guys fucking crazy? <laughs> he used to do this thing where he put his left hand over his right hand and he would just say, look, um, but anyway, at the risk of offending these people, it seems like it has, you go a step further. And Heidegger does some, something simple where you're like, but a universal still is a something. So think of the universal for being itself. And the most universal, lowercase u, of being is not a particular being, nor is it even a type of being. It's just being itself, which is indeterminate. Yes. 
and I think it's in the easiest terms, it's something like that. Um, now Heidegger's going to have an issue with this because he's like, you're already saying too much. You can't use ontological language to describe being. But I kind of think this is what Hegel means. And I think if this is what Hegel means, this is kind of like the thing you're saying about blank mind, right? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Okay, I'm done talking now. That was too much Hegel for <laughs> this year. No, but for the next five years. Uh, now, just to clarify, so a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I kind of like Hegel. Hegel, I think, is in a way fun uh, because the moment you understand the mechanism, it's much less, less I always say this, it's much less obscure than what he seems, and it's much easier than what it seems. Yes, as with anything else, give it a chance, get familiar and, uh, with it. To me, it's actually, and I, I don't know if you agree with this, I, I think we've talked about this before, me and you. Like Kant, crystal clear, but very hard. Hegel, obscure, but actually kind of easy. Hmm, yeah. Uh, but with, with Hegel specifically, uh, yes, so that's pretty much where I was going with it. Like this this primordial being, let's call it, right? That has no specific characteristic to the point that it includes or actually is in relationship with this nothingness that's there too. But aside from, from the Hegelian language, right? Um, which you will need to, to tackle if we're talking about idealism, uh, pretty much. Um uh, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about a blank mind or, a, and you know, to complicate even to complicate more stuff. Uh, while you were talking about this this in the, this uncharacterized being, right? I was wondering that if in order to be so indeterminate. It doesn't have to be an idea rather than a being. I th correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Hegel would say since being is the larger category, it'd have to be that. Yeah, no, absolutely. The thing is, though, and I guess it's the same problem that Heidegger has, right? You're mm. you're making it into a thing, and you're already limiting it. Yeah, like an idea already is something. It already it's already a mode of being. Yes, yes. So, uh, but you mean you have to go beyond being into <laughs> something even emptier? Yeah, and well, anyway, we're never gonna get, gonna get out of it. I think there's no getting out of this. Now, by going going back to to the idealism, so Hegel is a good starting point, though, for for the second part of idealism, right? Yes. Uh, isn't it like the absolute idealism? Isn't it him, the guy? Yes, I was actually thinking of the phrase "absolute spirit" when you were talking. Yeah, and uh, and you know Hegel and in general the the all after Kant people, right? They end up being the uh, idealists by definition when we talk in philosophy, right? And just to just to give a little a little uh, historical. Uh, can we say uh, coordinates there? So, after Kant writes the uh, the first critique, there's a group of people in Germany that read this thing, this thing, and say, "Oh, this thing is cool, right?" And he, they take it, this first critique, and start acting like the thing in itself doesn't exist, pretty much. That's fifty, right? 
and that's what that's why Kant needs to write another premise, the second premise to his critique to say, no, 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 people, you're making a mistake here. That thing, those things are there. It's not that we are just free flowing and making stuff up from our mind. It's not that there is nothing. It's only ideas and only this kind of stuff. Uh, but they don't listen to him pretty much, right? And we have Fichte, Schelling, and eventually Hegel just sort of advancing these ideas and saying things like, well, not only like Barclay, we can have sensation of just of ideas and ideal things, and, and uh, you know, we can only uh, approach the world from the perspective of our mind. These people start thinking seriously that we actually create the world the way it is. That the world is a product of our mind. Now, I would argue that most of them would not say that the world is a product of a singular individual mind, but rather that the world is the product of our collective minds somehow. That the world exists because we think. We think it into existence. And I will say, given that this, let's call it model, can be interpreted in a, several different ways, I think it would be accurate to say, and all of post-Kantian continental philosophy is some version of this. Yes. What you might call, like, anti-realist philosophy. Yes. And it, do, it could be as literal as there is n nothing outside of our minds and we create everything. Or it could be more closer to Kant, but another flavor in the, in the, the spirit of like, well, there is stuff outside, but that's not the world. The thing we interact with, we do create because it is a product of consciousness. Yes. and Because I, I would argue Kant, Husserl, Heidegger even... The hermeneuticists, like all of those people, do some version of that. Yeah. Whereas maybe the the German idealists do the more hardcore version that you're saying. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, and you're right. Like there's everybody does a version of this, and I think that we have settled, uh, sort of, within philosophy, um, in thinking that some aspects of the world are actually posed by our minds while others maybe not, right? I think that we yep. have with Hegel we get to the, the excess of logic, right? Because again, the thing with Hegel is like very similar to the thing with Barclay, like if you follow him logically, you're going to get to the point where there is the absolute spirit. You get, The system is all-encompassing. The system will prove you that all that there is is a mind and and nothing else, and we create the world with our minds. I think that after uh, getting baited in this excess of reason uh, with with Hegel, we kind of withdraw back, and you you know, and with with Husserl, with Heidegger, and with a lot of contemporary philosophy, we kind of have moved away uh, from from the absolute idealism, but we still have some forms of it. Uh, and I think that these things have trickled down 
not willingly most of the time, it trickled down to our everyday language and life, right? Uh, and I was mentioning before, and we don't have to get into much specifics, but I think it's useful, as usual, to kind of tie these things to, to the stuff that we that we are experiencing. Uh, I think that most, that a lot of people have an idealistic version of reality in mind when they think about a lot of stuff. Um, like most of the most of the very controversial things uh, that we hear uh, today, I think, have have in the background this 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 uh, can we call it this contraposition between realism and idealism, right? It's there. How how much of when we talk all concepts like social construct, right? Uh, all con all all like, all concepts like I don't know culturally uh, determined. These things, this these are forms of idealism. I want to say. I don't know if you agree mm. with that. Yeah, I, I it is, and like this back and forth happens in conversations about identity for example um and it's sometimes it gets it does get more solipsistic too right it does come down to like well if i think this thing then that's that's it right because i'm thinking it and that's that's what i feel like how can that be not the case otherwise i wouldn't be thinking it or feeling it and it's an interesting place to be in because I think, as with anything else, to some extent these things are true, and to some extent they're not totally true, mm -hmm. right? So there's kind of a Aristotelian middle. <laughs> no, true. Go ahead. You, you were saying. You were saying no, I mean I think at, so. Yeah, I think this is a good example of how most people don't encounter philosophy proper in their everyday lives. But they most certainly encounter things that embody certain philosophical positions and, let's say, conflicts mm -hmm. that exist in the zeitgeist, in the literature, and have existed for over 2,000 years. Like, wh whether or not you know it, a thing you're thinking, a thing you're doing is in line and or against some position within some larger conversation that's been being had for longer than you exist right mm -hmm. and so it's why we could always be like oh yeah you know this thing this philosopher is talking about it's like this event that just happened or this thing like yeah those higher level things are actually dependent on these much more lower level fundamental things and you see how your answers on a fundamental level determine everything built on it like for example uh like a non-controversial one would be being like, oh, I choose things, right? I do this, and I could choose to not become that. I could choose to become that. And it's the same with everyone, so I could blame them for not doing it and praise them for doing it. But, like, that requires a belief in a certain kind of free will. And that kind of free will requires a belief in something like a self that may or may not be dualistic, right? Which then requires that kind of metaphysical belief in separate substances or at least 
different modes within a substance. And that requires a certain belief about being in general. And so you see these things that are hyper-specific and seemingly unrelated to these weird philosophical concepts actually being not only rooted in, but being necessary uh, corollaries of those much more fundamental philosophical positions. And it's very hard to explain that because like, you have to kind of do philosophy for a long time before you go, oh, I get it. So if you find yourself frustrated in your class and confused and not seeing connections, don't throw everything out. Don't throw your hands up in the air. Don't jump out the window. Be like, okay, there's something here, but it's going to require a lot of attention and time and effort. And over time, the movie as a whole is going to become clearer to me. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, I agree with you uh, 100%. I... I'll add that, you know, those decisions, and it was kind of one of the points uh, in our walk and talk, in our walk and talk on last Saturday? Yeah, last Saturday. Mm. Uh, like those metaphysical decisions that we make, uh, you know, as a community, for sure, but also I think individually, partially, because we're still part of a group, like we associate with people that more or less think the way we do. Uh, and so on. Well, those decisions have more practical, how can we say, applications that have more effects on your everyday life than we might think, that you might think. Mm. It's, uh, again, remember what we were talking about last episode, right? And remember what Anthony said, uh, what you just said, right, uh, uh, at the beginning of this episode, right? How abstract it was and what this thing, did, how weird this thing that we were talking about uh, called idealism is, right? But then, the moment you're talking to your friends or the moment you're listening to the news, you are, uh, you are, you bump into uh, questions regarding, for example, a classic example, thing that comes to my mind all the time when we talk about social construct is race, for example, right? Uh, and you hear all the time, well, race is a social construct. Race is a social construct, right? Well, that means that we created that thing, that that idea, that idea eventually developed into an entire structure within reality that made us behave in a way rather than another, that made us look at people in one way rather than another, that characterize probably uh, fundamentally the life of, of people, right? And think of this, think of how, uh, or another thing, if you, if you, you know, if you are an idealist, really, uh, unknowingly, most likely, you're somebody who kind of, if you want to move away from race into something less controversial, like, think of nationality, right? Think how mm. much that thing shapes who we are and how can we live and what things can we do, what kind of things can we do. And even if you, if you come here as an immigrant, uh, what, what it means, like, how proud people are to be something, right? But there's no doubt that this concept of nationality is not in nature, right? It's something that we have created. It is 
an idea that eventually becomes reality, right? And how it changes again. Think of how it how it shapes the fact that you are an American national. The difference that it makes in individuals, the fact that you're an American national versus somebody who's a North Korean national. Mm-hmm. Both of you, non-idealistically, right? If we clean up, let's assume that we clean up all the that we can't clean up all the idealistic qualities that we attach to our being, if we clean up that, the nationality part of this, out of these two individuals, think how many of those differences will go away, right? Hmm. And if that's the case, again, the more things you believe are products of our ideas, the less things are determined and the more things can be changed and the more freedom you have yes while yeah the less amount of things you believe are ideal and rather idealistic if you want to call it and rather more realistic where realism is the other part of it the less things can be changed and the more trapped you are into some specific categories that seem to be natural right right and the less freedom you have thinking another example is like what is a person right that determines rights and laws and all sorts of things but um with this idealism stuff you know i think kant is an interesting one i think ultimately he has it right because um, he has something called transcendental idealism. Now, to understand what this means, <laughs> we have to understand that Kant is responding to like so many things. He's responding to rationalism and empiricism, innateism, and idealism, mm-hmm. and he's trying to like combine all of these things because he thinks each of them has something correct but not everything correct Mm -hmm. and so he has this phrase like I'm an empirical realist but a transcendental idealist you're like what the heck does that mean and it basically means yes he thinks that there's a world quote unquote loosely speaking but it's not the thing we think it is. Or when I say world, it's not what you might mean when you say world. So transcendental idealist is already interesting because it's like, I'm an idealist, but there's something that transcends this. And there are these transcendental categories that structure everything. So basically Kant's idea in a nutshell, to really simplify it for everyone, is... Yes, ideas, to go back to the stuff we said in the first episode, are, people are not going to like this, uh, representations in some sense of um, sensations, although he might use a different word like intuitions, experiences, I think is the basic thing we could say, Mm -hmm. you've had. It's not the case that the thing you experienced 
exists outside of your experience in that way, but it does exist in a different way. Mm-hmm. So he believes that like there is a thing called the world in itself or the thing in itself, and that is the truly mind-independent object. Um, however, being truly mind-independent, we cannot access it as such. We access it through a set of structures we have um, in our sensibility, as he called it. Mm-hmm. And these are the forms and categories of experience. Mm-hmm. And one of these things, weirdly enough, he says is space. So most people think space is something out there that, that you learn about by experiencing the world. Mm-hmm. And Kant's like, uh-uh. Space is a basically a, like a cookie cutter it's like a shape of your experience and you're projecting it onto a world in itself that is otherwise not spatial. So whenever you engage with that world, you see stuff in space. Whenever you think about things, you think about stuff in time, which is another form uh, of thought. Yes, there's stuff out there. No, they're not really spatial and temporal. No, things really don't cause other things. No things really aren't one or multiple or total. Like, no things don't have these relations. But yeah, there's something. You just can't use any of your language to speak about it because your language is based on what he calls, like, phenomenal experiences, whereas these things are outside of the phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like in the past you have also said you think basically Kant has this right yeah yeah i think it's the most convincing of the explanations i don't know if it's i mean yes i like him i like what he what he there's there's a bunch of difficulties as you, as you know but i think the ultimate and is, I think, is the one that convinces me the most and i think kant is halfway in between Locke and barkley because Locke goes there's a world outside it's a little bit like what we experience. Some of what we experience is in the in itself, but some of it's not. Whereas Barclay goes, there is no world outside at all. Whereas Kant goes, no, no, there is a world outside. But Locke is wrong to say that some of what we have is out there. Really, none of what we have is out there. So he takes the realism well, we don't know. of someone like Locke. Well, we don't, he says we don't know. But then he winds up saying, but it has to be there. Otherwise, like an appearance can't appear from no, nothing. No, no, what I'm saying is we don't know if part of what we have is out there or not. Oh. Because we have no access, right? We have no access. We have no access. Yeah, I, I think Kant takes a more strong position, but I know that's the agnostic position is also like one of the dominant Kant interpretations as well. So you're th- wait a minute. You're thinking that, that Kant believes that absolutely – none of our categories are possible in the world in itself. That's my reading, yes. I would say the agnosticism is about what the thing in itself is like, not about whether it's there. 
And I think he actually says by necessity, none of the phenomenal categories can apply to it. Okay. So I see this. By the way, pause for listeners. This is a hair splitting thing, but it's really important. So continue. (laughs) Yes. So agreed with the things in themselves need to be there. Agreed. I remember that clearly as well from the critique. The thing that I am not necessarily in agreement with you is the fact that he, and I, again, I might be wrong, I haven't read it in a long time, is the fact that with certainty, with absolute certainty, we can say that none of the phenomenal categories can apply in mm-hmm. the world itself. Because that will be that will mean already that we know something about that. But if we know nothing about that, there is a possibility of, because of pure coincidence, one of those things actually end up working. The red is actually red, right? Hmm. Yeah, because because I I have this memory of him talking about like you might be right. Actually, I, I, I honestly. I don't remember the, the I, letter of it, um, but I am just speculating. Yeah, I might, I might not be too. I just want to. That that's an interesting distinction because I remember he says something like, "We can know them in a negative sense." Yeah. But again, I am not like someone who has written books on Kant's. No, no, no. I, but it's, I I, I'm thinking like I'm trying to think logically here, right? If we know nothing about it, what prevents one of those things to be actually accidentally? Yeah, I guess the response would have to be because the the forms and categories only exist within as forms and categories of sensibility. Yeah, you would have to take that position. That's the difference. Even the like like time, for example, he has to say no, no, can exist no, no, of outside. Of course, of course. And I'm not thinking of the of, of time and space. I'm thinking more of the. The categories, the, okay. Yeah, the schematism, yeah. Right. And, and in a way, he kind of says there has to be causality, which is a contradiction if you take my view, but it's not a contradiction if you take your view, because the things in themselves need to exist, which is another category, by the way, in a causal, second category, relationship to us. So I suppose your way allows that contradiction to disappear whereas mine I'm like Lucy and I'm like you got some explaining to do you know <laughs> and again I'm I think as as you said before this is air splitting I don't know how many of the listeners are interested in this but you know that's what we do sometimes we get into but it goes to show you that like it's not as simple as like so this guy is saying there's no world <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know it's actually these really long nuanced points with subtle distinctions uh, and difficult questions and and answer processes. And again, I said this before, he had to write another premise to his book because there was an entire movement born from the wrong interpretation of it. They were still going and still went and became so influential. Yep, and we could keep going on forever about this i mean we did some stuff on barclay and how it relates to other people we talked about hegel we talked about some of the german idealists and kant 
you know, the, we said not really anything about um, Husserl, who I think in many ways kind of tries to take Kant to the next step. Like he agrees generally with what he's doing, but thinks he's kind of saying too much. So he believes in you have to have this epoche where like we can't even assert that the thing in itself exists. We have to be truly putting that, you know, uh, how would you call it? Bracket it. <laughs> uh, proposition out of out of judgment. Yeah. Um, so there's all different shapes and forms. So next time you hear idealism, think, oh, this has something to do with that thing these guys are talking about. Yeah, don't think about the rainbows. And if you, and that's right. Don't think about rainbows. <laughs> um, and if you do read into this stuff, think like, oh, wait, wait, wait. It, maybe it's not that crazy. Maybe there are like really logical arguments here. Yeah. And maybe it isn't just some like dude bro stoner thing that someone's saying to you, you know? Yeah. And uh, which I think it's one of the, the issues with this. Sometimes they we sound like, "What are these dudes talking about?" Right? It's like that's I, like every time I do Descartes, they're like, "What the hell is this?" Like, we just talked about yeah. this the other day. Um, but maybe yeah, people have this issue with philosophy in general. I think. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking. So this is a, the second series. So now it's four episodes of somewhat hardcore philosophy at this point, right? Heavy stuff. Heavy yeah. stuff between the the octopus and this. I mm. think we're gone. Heavy stuff. Maybe it might be time for a lighter stuff. Which maybe the music thing which we were talking about before is not a bad idea. Maybe more idealistic. Yeah. Or maybe we can do something with psychology if Uh-oh. somebody's listening. Anyway. Uh-oh. Uh oh. But you know, jokes aside, I think I think that it might be a good idea to do something with. With music, I, especially because we talked about this all the time between ourselves. Yeah, we both have backgrounds in music. Yeah, and uh, we both hate Justin Bieber, so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not only <laughs> backgrounds in music, but like that's that's the thing I like better than philosophy. You know, uh, like I'm doing philosophy now mm-hmm. as a career, but uh. But it was my plan B. I hear you. You know, music was my plan A. So that's that's really my first love. Yeah, and you know, to me, the, the two things are equivalent. I want to say, but mm. um, well, that's. I think that's it for today, isn't it? Sounds good. To be continued. To be continued. See you later. Mm-hmm.